invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 uh, to get the context. Uh, today on Facebook, I don't know if you're on Facebook, I'm going to put my outline for chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 uh, so you'll know, Lord willing, the next few weeks how we're going to break it down. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at verse beginning in verse 1, uh, again to set the context. Thank you, choir, for working hard and uh, singing that great hymn of the faith. That was awesome. Praise the Lord for that. I don't know how they do that with their voices. God gives different people different abilities to his glory. Talking about one of the most important subjects over the next few weeks, the subject of salvation. Uh, we have before us... Uh, Today and in the coming weeks, one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture on the issue of salvation. It is one of the most important and it is incredibly, incredibly clear. So we want to take our time working through this passage and seek to understand and digest uh, the words and the phrases and how they go together. That we would have a, a, a solid understanding of salvation. This is a, a big book with a lot of teaching in it. There are, there are some who have called these the most important verses in the Bible. And the reason is because of their clarity. That it is so clear here. Some things about salvation. In a world, again, I would remind you, uh, that is just full of confusion on such matters. Ephesians chapter 2, we begin in verse 1, where the Word of God says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But essentially this discussion of salvation is placed against the background of how far we were from God. And that's what we see in verses 1 through Three. We see how far we were removed from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath. And essentially, as it were, this diamond of salvation is put on that black background. If you go to a jeweler and they want to make this diamond stand out, you know, they're trying to get you to buy it for a gift or maybe an engagement ring on that happy occasion. Oftentimes, diamonds are displayed on, on some background that shows their beauty or that emphasizes their beauty. And essentially, that's what we have here. Verses 1 through 3 are this graphic depiction of the depravity, sinfulness, darkness of man and how, gr how greatly he is separated from God. And then we see salvation come under the terminology of but God. But God. Now today we're going to focus on essentially why God saved us. Because that's what we see here in this text. That God saved us because of his character. It's expressed in his his rich mercy, His great love, and by His grace. This is why God saved us. 
Next week, we're going to look specifically at what God did in saving us. And we see that in, in some of these verbs. Look in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised us up. Verse 6, seated us. So that's what God did in saving us. He raised us up and he seated us in heavenly places in Christ. But, but this morning we're going to focus on why he did it. And he did it because of his character expressed in the very simple phrase, by grace you have been saved. Which I think is the simplest, clearest way to express salvation. By grace you have been saved. And it's because of his rich mercy and his great love. So we want to understand salvation. And first of all, to understand salvation... We want to understand God's intervention and his initiative. We want to understand God's intervention and his initiative. Again, against this backdrop of the, the depravity of man in verses 1 through 3, look at verse 4. But God. But God. Here we see the intervention and initiative of man. As it, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that in these two words you have, in a sense, the whole gospel. And what he means by that is... God acted. God took action. Despite the sinfulness of man, God is the one who took action for salvation. Praise God. He acted. He intervened. And again, this morning we're going to look at why he did it. Why God would intervene when we are dead, when we're following the course of the world, when we're living in the passions of our flesh, and by our very nature, by what we are, children of wrath. God did something about that. And that's the, the very first principle you want to understand when you think about salvation, if you want to understand it. There is an intervention by God. God has intervened in this reality that essentially man got himself into this predicament. And God has acted to get us out. But God, being rich in mercy. So if we want to understand salvation, we need to understand his intervention. Then we need to understand his rich mercy. Notice that it's rich. That's the word for wealth. God has a wealth of mercy. God expresses a wealth of mercy in bringing us from death to life. There's a wealth of mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That there is a just and a right and a due penalty, but because God gives mercy, we don't get what we deserve. Now, if you could think of it in these terms, of you, you, in your household, I'm, you probably have rules. Or maybe you grew up with some rules in your household. I know I certainly did. And, and let's just imagine, in your household, one of the very clear rules is, if you talk back to your mother, you're grounded for a day. Pretty decent rule. Maybe a little lenient. But it's very clear. You do this action, the penalty is very clear. Talk back to your mom, you're grounded for a day. And what does a kid do? Because he's a sinner. He talks back to his mom. Well, hopefully at that point, he would repent of his sin and say, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I know I was wrong. But the penalty is there, it's very clearly stated. Well, the penalty for doing that is you're grounded for a day. Mercy would be... Okay, we're going to let that go. We're going to let that. We're going to give you another chance. 
You're not going to be grounded for a day. So the penalty is clear, but mercy is essentially, you're not having to, to face that penalty because of your transgression. You're not getting what you justly deserve. You see this expressed clearly in the, the life of David the king in the Old Testament. Where David is essentially in a position of power and authority, God put him there for the good of his people. And David, in one case, abuses that authority, essentially takes a woman for his own, and then has her husband murdered. And then covers it up. Now, under the law that David is living under in the Old Testament, there's two capital crimes there. Adultery was a crime to be punished by death, and murdering another person was a crime punished punishable by death, let alone the fact that he's a king and and misusing his authority. And essentially he's confronted by Nathan the prophet after this conspiracy and this cover-up goes on for a while. He's confronted, and when he's confronted with his sin, David repents. David repents. And you know what Nathan's response to him is? Nathan's response is, the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die. David understood that what he's done is doubly worthy of death. That's the penalty. The very clearly stated penalty is death. And Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Now, Psalm 51 is the psalm, the prayer David issues in his repentance to God. And you know how it begins? It begins, have mercy on me. It's an appeal to mercy because he knows that's his only hope. Our only hope as guilty sinners before before a holy God is for him not to hold this against us. It's mercy. It's mercy. That's why one of the the greatest prayers, I think, in the Bible is in Luke 18, 13, in the parable of the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Where, of course, the Pharisee is all religious and going through his religious actions and thinks he's right with God has a strong view on the sovereignty of God he does. He recognizes, God, I thank you for not making me like them. But then the tax collector beats his breast, won't even look to heaven, and his prayer is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes the predicament he's in with God. He recognizes that he's a sinner, and his plea is for mercy. That's a prayer every one of us should pray. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you should plead to God for mercy. And the good news is, he grants mercy to the repentant. He is kind and gracious and gives mercy to the repentant. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. So we understand that God is rich in mercy. Next, if we're going to understand salvation, we need to understand God's great love. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, these are, these are the reasons he has acted. His, his, his rich mercy, and notice his great love. The word great means much of. An abundance. God has an abundance of love. Now love is a deep concern and a commitment to another that is expressed by self-sacrifice. If you study your Bible, you'll find over and over again, this is how love is expressed. It's a commitment. This is why when two people get married, at the heart of a marriage is this covenant agreement, these vows that you make. And these vows are expressions of commitment. I'm committed to this, to do this, to do this. 
That at the heart of love is a commitment to another person, genuine concern. And this commitment of love expresses itself in sacrifice, in sacrifice. This is why to follow Jesus, to love him, is to deny yourself, to deny what you want, to deny how you've chosen to live, to deny your plans for your life, and to follow Jesus and to deny yourself. This is why the the greatest expression of, of love in all history is that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is a demonstration. It's an action. And God demonstrates it by sending his son to die for our sins. Think about the story of Old Testament Israel. One of the things I want you to see over the weeks and years here together is the amazing consistency in what God is doing revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's amazing. So the Bible, the Bible is essentially a library. It's not really one book. I mean, it is in one sense, but it's really 66 different books. It's a library. And much of this library is a history of the way God has dealt with his people, Israel. I mean, that's about three-fourths of your Bible. And it's essentially this story about how man has sinned, but God has a plan to save his people from their sins. And as you, as you read this Old Testament account of Israel, guess what comes very clearly out in this account? They continually disobey God. This is essentially the story of Israel. God is gracious to them, and they disobey. Over and over again, they are disobedient to God. Now, uh, essentially at a time in history where God gives them one more opportunity to repent, and God is so gracious, God over and over again sends them prophets to proclaim to them, here's what's wrong with, here's, here's what your sin is and you need to repent. Over and over again, that's a, it's a work of grace, God sending the prophets to Israel, calling them to repent. Essentially, the, the last opportunity for them to repent is the prophet Jeremiah. And essentially, for 40 years, Jeremiah preaches to them saying, repent or God's going to bring judgment on you like he said he would. So for 40 years, Jeremiah is preaching this message of repentance. And what is clear, if you've read the Old Testament up to this point, is these people were disobedient. In fact, in Joshua, when God brings him into the land, God says, I know you will not obey. And here you have Jeremiah kind of coming to the end of the line where God's going to bring judgment down on them and they're still disobeying. Look at what, in that kind of context, look what God says in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah 31. Now keep in mind, Jeremiah is one of the most fierce prophets of the Old Testament because essentially his mission is to go to the people of God one last time and command them to repent and and throw down the the ultimatum that if you don't repent, judgment's coming in this generation. But look at at in that kind of context, and and with this, Jeremiah described his ministry and his preaching as, there's a fire in my bones. He described the word coming out of his mouth as a fire that consumes, as a hammer that breaks. But look what he says in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be 
the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You, you read this story and you want over and over again. God just gives them grace on top of grace, like we sang about at the beginning of the service. Over and over again, grace on top of grace. And here's why. Because God has loved them with an everlasting love. Verse 4, again I will rebuild you. You shall be built, O virgin Israel. Now, if you read on in chapter 31, you come to verse 31, which is essentially the way God is going to solve the problem of his people's sin. He's going to make a new covenant. And in that new covenant, he's going to write his law on their heart. And he is going to forgive them of all their sin. But it's because of his great love. It's because of his great love. By the way, any kind of idea about the, the God revealed in the Old Testament and God revealed in the New Testament is very different, that's wrong. So my first day in the Old Testament class in seminary, our professor set us up to demonstrate this. And, and essentially he gave us two pie charts. And the pie chart had maybe like five or six pies in it. But on one sheet of paper there were two pie charts. And essentially under one of them he said, God revealed in the Old Testament. And on the other pie chart it said, God revealed in the New Testament. And he said, okay, just describe the character of God revealed in the Old Testament. And then describe the character of God revealed in the New Testament. And most people in the class on the Old Testament side put wrath, anger, judgment. And on the New Testament side put love, mercy, grace, those kind of ideas. And the reason the professor did that was to show that that is a false dichotomy. That is not the case. The Old Testament is full of grace and full of love. And the New Testament is full of wrath and anger as well as love and mercy and grace. Friends, read the book of Revelation. Read the book of Revelation. You have one of the reasons I'm challenged to preach through Revelation, I, I really am, I don't know when I'm going to do it. We'll see if I live long enough, but you've got 18 straight chapters of wrath in Revelation. I mean, how do you preach that week in and week out? I mean, going through verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 was hard enough. But imagine 18 chapters of God unleashing his wrath. Frightening and fierce. But you know what? God is a God of great love. That's why he saved us. That's why he saved us. And look at the end of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. And that's the final thing this morning I want us to look at and understand. We understand God's intervention. To understand salvation we've got to understand God's rich mercy. He doesn't give us what he deserves, what we deserve. We understand God's great love. He has a lot of love to give. And finally, we understand the grace of God. Now, this is an explanation of what has come before. He has talked about dead in your trespasses and sins, children of wrath, but God intervened. It's, it's because of God's rich mercy. It's because of God's great love. He raised you up even though you were dead. By grace, you have been saved. That's the explanation of it. That essentially, in thinking about salvation, grace is the header and under that heading are the ways God expresses himself. Like, because of grace, because he has grace on you, he has 
rich in his mercy towards you. His great love comes to you. Why does his great love come to you? It's because of grace. This is an explanation of what has come before. And in fact, this is emphasized in this passage. That's why in chapter 2, verse 8, the same phrase appears again. By grace you have been saved. This is why in chapter 1, it says that God gives you the blessings of salvation to the praise of his glorious grace. The grace is the heading under which salvation has got to be understood if it's rightly understood. And it's not only an explanation, it's an exclamation. That essentially if you're texting something and you want to say something really intense, maybe it's get to bed, you put it all in caps. You put it all in caps. I think that's what this phrase is here. By grace you have been saved. It's like an all in caps phrase to make it very clear, here's the point. And that again is why it's repeated and why it bridges off from chapter 1. By grace you have been saved. Grace is the kind favor of God. It is the expression of his kindness and his favor. It's, it's, it's unmerited. That means grace by its nature is not reciprocal. In this world and in this life, that's how most things work. At work, when you go to a job, that is a reciprocal relationship where you provide a service, you do something, and then you receive something from it. Money or position. That's just the way the world works. It's one of the reasons it's so hard for people to understand grace is because it's so contrary to the way the world works and the way we think. Grace is not merited. It's not you do something for it and then because you did this, God gives it to you. It's the opposite of that. It's unmerited. It's also undeserved. It's not like a reward. Like you do something and then you're rewarded for it because you deserve it. Grace is the opposite of that. It's not deserved. This is why the scripture in speaking of grace calls it a gift as we'll see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. As you see in Romans chapter 3. It's by His grace as a gift. A gift is not merited and it's not deserved. It's, it's the kind favor of God, though you don't deserve it. Now back to our family analogy of the family rules. That essentially, if the kid talks back to mom, it's a day of grounding. Well, mercy is, okay... We're going to let that go. We're not going to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. Grace would be the kid talks back to mom. And you say, you know what? That was wrong and you shouldn't have done that. Here's a $100 bill for you. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? You see, grace is getting something you didn't deserve, you didn't earn, and really that you're not worthy of receiving. That, that, that essentially, someone else does the work and you receive benefit. And in salvation, Jesus Christ did the work and you receive the benefit of that work by grace. By grace, you have been saved. Let me illustrate this for you from the Old Testament. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, it's kind of an unusual passage. But I, I think this passage, now keep in mind this is just an example. You can only push it so far. But I, I think this is one of the, the greatest pictures 
of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love in all of the Bible. And that's what it's intended to be. It's intended to show Israel, here is how much God loves you. Here is how much grace God has given you. Look at how merciful God's been to you. Ezekiel chapter 16. Just to think more about the grace of God given to his people in the Old Testament. Okay, so Jeremiah preaches to them for 40 years. They still don't repent. So God brings judgment upon them and, and sends them into Babylon. Time we call the exile. And guess what? While they're in Babylon, under the judgment and, and punishment of God, guess what God does? Even there he sends them prophets to proclaim his word to them. One of those prophets is Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, by the way, just to give you some more context, Ezekiel chapter 16 is longer than the book of Ruth. There's a lot here about the grace and love of God. Don't overlook it. This is amazing. Maybe for the rest of your homework today, you should take Ezekiel 16 and finish the chapter out and see how it kind of continues to progress. I'm just going to give you the front end of the story that shows you his grace, his mercy, and his love for Israel. Which, by the way, is given to every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how any person now receives and experiences the grace and mercy and love of, Je of, of God. It's through Jesus. Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. So we're going to read through verse 14. It's a bit lengthy, but it's quite powerful. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. So by the way, to a Jew, that's not like a good picture. Essentially, the idea is you came into the world through the coming together of pagans. You know, you're, verse 4. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. That essentially, in this imagery, when you were born, Israel, you weren't treated with the customary treatment of a baby. In fact, it gets worse. Look at verse 5. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And this is one of the things that happened in the ancient world. There would be babies born, and they would be taken, and they would be left out in the field. It's a horrible, graphic picture. And this is what God says, this, is, this was you, Israel, Jerusalem, right? this crown city. This is what you were like. You were like a baby that was left out in the field to die. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. So it pictures God walking past this infant that's, that's certain to die, left out in the field, wallowing in his blood. And God gives Israel life. 
Verse 7, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up, grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your, your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord your God, and you became mine. It's the picture of taking care of this baby that was doomed to die, raising it up, and then marrying them. This is the highest level of commitment possible in our relationships. This is how God pictures his relationship to Israel. And again, keep in mind, this baby is totally undeserving, unloved, and has received no mercy but from God. This baby receives grace, love, and mercy. Verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with adornments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver in your clothing of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was per perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Now, what should the response to that be? By grace, by mercy, and by love, given life, given care, entered into marriage, given everything to make this girl beautiful, what should her response be? Love and faithfulness should be her response. But you read the rest of the chapter and it's quite the opposite. The rest of the chapter, she is going to do very bad things and turn against her husband, but then in the end, God is going to redeem her. It's an amazing picture of the grace, mercy, and love of God. And getting back to Ephesians, you see what you were, what we were, and what God did because of his rich mercy, his great love and his amazing grace you see what God did what should that call forth from us faithful obedience to the Lord as his followers and guess what that's what Ephesians 4 5 and 6 are all about because God saved you so dramatically and powerfully here's how you should live the story of the Bible and the story for the Christian is not that you cleaned yourself up and that you got really good no, the story of the Bible is you were dead and God gave you life. You were following the devil, but God seated you with Christ. That's the story of what God did. And the reason he did it isn't because, my goodness, this one is so lovable. I'll love them. No, it's the opposite of that. That one doesn't deserve love, but we received love and mercy. One of the reasons I'm so excited about this is because... This shows you that salvation is rooted in the character of God. What God does, we're going to focus on next week, raising you up from the dead, seating you in the heavenly places with Christ. What God does in saving us is rooted in his character. It's because of what he's like. Now you read just this brief description. Rich mercy, great love, by grace you have been saved. Do you see how good God is? Do you see how good God is? 
Our circumstances in our life and our difficulty in this world could lead you to the conclusion and have led some to the conclusion that God is bad. God is amazingly good. And how do you see that and how do you know that? You know it because of the fact that he saved you. Now in this life you're certainly going to die. If Jesus doesn't return first, it's because of the fall and because of sin. But my goodness, there's amazing good news, isn't there? That God has given you great mercy, a whole lot of love, and it's because of his grace. Now, isn't that an amazing message to tell people? To show people in the Bible what they are and to show people what God has done. This is a, a great passage to learn and to use in our evangelism. Let me conclude with one more example from the Old Testament. One, one of essentially the high points in the Old Testament of God's revelation is when he reveals himself to Moses. Moses is on the mountain in Exodus 34 and Moses is pleading with God, show me your glory. And look at how Moses describes the character of God. Now it's interesting, God reveals himself to Moses and Moses' description is about his character. It's not about specifically what he looks like. It's about what he is like in relationship to his people. Look at it, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers or the, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's amazing and it's a great ex expression and emphasis on the gracious, steadfast love of God. But God will not clear the guilty. And this is why he sent his own son to die on the cross for our sins, to bear the wrath of God. To take the justice that we deserve to pay the price for our sins. But whoever believes in him, whoever calls on the name of the, the Lord, will be saved. And that's why salvation from first to last, and we'll see it next week in Ephesians, three times in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, it's through Jesus Christ. And that's why all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your trust needs to rest in and on and through Jesus Christ to bring you to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing expression of your rich mercy, your great love, and your grace. Help us, God, to rejoice in this as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to leave resolve to be faithful to you because of how far you have brought us from death to life. From the world to being seated with Christ. And it's because of your great character, God. So we would leave with a fresh confession of your goodness. Seeing how good you've demonstrated yourself to be in our life by sending Jesus to die for our sins. So God, help us to trust in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The call is to turn from sins and trust Jesus. For us Christians, it's to stand in awe and marvel at what God has done for us and to leave determined to be faithful to him.